Good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight, this Wednesday evening. I remember when I met the Lord years ago, there was a, um, and I guess you know, there was a hunger in me, and still is, but I remember that hunger that I'd had uh, after I'd met the Lord to want, obviously, to eat. I think that's the first thing, one of the nat- first things when you, um, uh, in a natural birth. How many have ever seen calves born or anything like that? Grew up around, okay, you've seen her puppies, I guess, you know, but calves, when you watch a, when you watch a calf drop and, and uh, the first thing that calf wants to do when it hits the ground, when it stands up real quick, it's not like a horse. What's the first thing it wants to do? It wants to feed, doesn't it? It's hungry. It wants to feed. It's just natural about, about birth is your hunger and you want to do that. And I was that way as a Christian, and I remember seeking out a lot of things and trying to, back in those days, I traveled. I didn't have anybody to tell me what books to get. There wasn't a discipling program around. And, uh, but I remember going on the road and I went into a Christian bookstore, and uh, I didn't even know what to look for. I just wanted something in there. So I was looking, I was looking for interesting titles, and Pastor will get appreciate this. I got a book by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and, uh, uh, and, uh, who was a, um, a pretty deep thinker that I ended up finding out. And uh, it was like really throwing a half side of beef to a baby. That's what it was. I had no idea what I was reading. And then I called my brother, and he was able to tell me some good books, some good reading, you know, to help me and, and, uh, uh, on my Christian growth. But I remember being very, very hungry, and I wanted to know more. I just wasn't satisfied where I was, and I wanted to get to know him and, and uh, uh, wanted to grow closer to him and know more about the Christian walk. And I think that's something that's natural when a person is born again. And uh, uh, that it's just natural for, one, for us to want to feed and be around the Word of God and know more about the Lord. And uh, so uh, we're going to sing a song about that tonight, okay? Let's all stand and sing this great song. Higher ground. continuing our study on killing the gospel, really the effects of social justice in our culture and in the church. And we've been going through this now for several weeks, and we're about rounding the corner toward home base. We've got tonight, and then next week we're going to try to wrap it all up and bring this to a conclusion. But uh, I think it's been very important for us to see some of these cultural things that are happening through the lens of the gospel. And this is what tends to happen in church. What tends to happen in church is if we allow the world to gain headway in the church, instead of interpreting what we see in the world through the lens of the gospel, we start cramming the gospel through the lens of our culture and our world. 
We, we, try to, we try to have the gospel make sense to the world in the way that the world sees things. And that's not what we're supposed to do. How many of you know we're called to lift up Jesus? Amen. And then people need to get a clear vision of who Jesus is, what his sacrifice is, what his gospel does. And then we're to live from the gospel, not live in the mold and confirmation of culture in fact, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us that. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Is this guy ever going to let us sit down tonight? In a minute, okay? <laughs> uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to the world. Don't take on the shape of the world. Don't let the world shape you in its image. Let God shape you in his image. And so the reason we're going through this is because every once in a while in culture, one of these philosophies will take root and grab traction and people will start cramming themselves to be conformed to these philosophies instead of seeing what these philosophies truly are through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of scripture. So we're back in this again tonight, and we're going to be looking at the death of reconciliation. The death of reconciliation. Uh, so we're going to be back in our text passage to kick things off tonight in Romans chapter 10. We'll begin reading with verse number 1. So uh, read along with me silently as I read aloud. Brethren, Paul, the Apostle Paul writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, my country, my countrymen, is that they might be saved. And that should be our goal with the gospel. How many of you would be just thrilled if so many people in Vienna, in Parkersburg, and in, in even Ohio, even Ohio, okay? <laughs> if we just see those folks trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that's what it's all about. That's what the gospel's meant to do. It's what the gospel's meant to do, and that's Paul's desire here. And we don't want anything interrupting that. We don't want anything getting in the way of that, okay? Uh, notice verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And whether it is something like Judaism, the law that Paul is referring to here, or some philosophy like social justice that's in our culture today, either way, if those things are man-made and a man-made attempt to produce self-righteousness, then it's not the righteousness of Jesus. And how many of you understand today desperately we need the righteousness of Jesus. We don't need to be going around establishing our own justice, our own righteousness. These things need to spring from the truth of who our creator God is. And notice with me as we continue to read on here. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. So we, we need to understand here that uh, we cannot go around to establish our own righteousness. And unfortunately, that's what the philosophy that's in our culture today of social justice tries to do in the power of mankind. So tonight we're going to deal with another aspect of how social justice 
is attempting to kill off the true message of the gospel, and we're going to be looking at the death of reconciliation. Let's pray and ask uh, the Holy Spirit of God to help us as he guides us to all truth tonight. Lord, we're thankful to be here in this place with your people, and we're thankful for the truth that you give us in your word so that we can be discerning, so that we can have your wisdom and not rely on our own wisdom, so that we can have your truth and not have to rely on our own experiences. Lord, I pray that you would really help to give stability to our heart and mind in your word tonight, because there are very compelling things and very entrapping things that are in our world today that are trying to lead us off course from your truth and your gospel. So Lord, help to protect us individually, help to protect us as a church, and may we hear your word clearly tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, before we dig too far into our lesson for tonight, I just want to continue to, to build out where we've gone so far already in our study. And we opened up the study, of course, looking at the assassin behind this death of the gospel. And, and we know that the one who's behind all of the deceit and the one who is behind all of the corruption and the one that is behind all of the lies is the father of lies. It's Satan. It's the devil. And the Bible refers to him as the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And he is the assassin. And we saw how even in the Garden of Eden, he came into Eve and began to lie concerning who God was and how God was mistreating her and how God did not want her to arrive at certain levels of knowledge. And deceived Eve, and then Eve partook of the fruit, and, and this was his attempt to kill off that relationship that we can have with God. And then we learned a little bit more about how these philosophies of social justice are not new things, but they extend all the way back from the beginning of time. The same traps, the, the same ensnarements are the same things that the devil uses today. How many of you understand we tend to fall for the same tricks a lot? And so the devil doesn't have to change his playbook. There might be some terms that are, are changed. There might be new uh, ways of packaging the same old tricks. But the devil essentially many times uses the same tricks that he has always used. And so we saw, first of all, in this death of the gospel, we saw the killing off of culpability or guilt. The killing off of culpability or guilt. And we see how the tenets or the philosophies of social justice do not deal with individual guilt or sin. And you can't, how many of you are standing tonight? You can't be saved if you don't see yourself as a sinner. The number one problem, and I've got a lot of problems. How many would have believed that tonight? Okay. The number one problem I still have to this day is guess who? Hey, don't be mean to me is me. Every day, I'm the number one problem I deal with. My heart, my mind, my flesh, the flesh lusteth against the spirit. But guess what? I want to blame other people. And we saw how Adam and Eve, right from the beginning, that was human, fallen human tendency, was to blame everybody else and not look at our own culpability, not look at our own guilt. So they blamed each other, they blamed God, they blamed the snake, you know. Just blame, 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 blame. And this is the philosophy of social justice, is it displaces personal guilt. It displaces personal culpability. And it feeds on victim groups. 
And it begins to have us look at the reasons how other people are causing us to act out or be oppressed or not find our true self. And and instead of dealing with the sin issue that we all bear and getting it right with God. And by the way, how many of you are glad tonight that we can personally get our personal sin and guilt dealt with by God himself and he's provided a way? And that's the gospel. But the death of culpability, the death of guilt, really blocks out the true message of the gospel. And then we dealt with the, the, the death of consequences. The death of consequences. How many of you know the Bible's pretty clear that sin brings about consequences? The wages of sin is what? But this is what Satan said in the Garden of Eden. Thou shalt not surely die. And the philosophies of social justice... Do not acknowledge the consequences of sin. In fact, the philosophy of social justice says that we can have a utopia that we can build here on earth if we will properly address all of the different victim groups and if we will ascend in knowledge and enlightenment. By the way, wasn't that exactly what Satan promised Eve in the Garden of Eden? When you take of this fruit, your eyes will be opened you will be enlightened, you will be as God. And so that's the same promise in this philosophy that we have today. And they displace God and they set themselves up as God, the elite enlightened, and then they begin to set themselves up as the authority that culturally oppresses people into their knowledge, their enlightenment, their dictatorial practices, And that's where we arrive at, at the conclusion of social justice. And so, it goes completely against the gospel of realizing, no, we live in a sinful, broken world. As long as we're still here on this sinful, broken world, there are going to be poor people, there are going to be rich people, there are going to be sick people, there are going to be healthy people, there are going to be Lazaruses, there are going to be rich men, there are going to be people of different ethnicities, there are going to be people of different backgrounds, and we all need Jesus. Not some enlightened elite person to fix all of our problems, categorize us in the proper victim groups, and then try to even everything out socially. In fact, Jesus himself didn't even call for that. When Jesus, we'll talk about this a little bit next week, when Jesus' disciples chided him about, hey, why are you allowing this woman to pour expensive oil on your feet when we could sell this oil and give it to the poor? Jesus didn't say, good idea. He turned to the disciples and said, the poor you will always have with you, but I am only with you for a short time. Listen, this lost, sinful, broken world isn't heaven. How many of you have realized that? And so our attempt is not to make this heaven. Our attempt is to get people the gospel so that eventually they can go to heaven. And if you're saved tonight, how many of you are glad this world's not your home, but heaven is tonight? And what a blessing that is. So we, we looked at the death of culpability or guilt. We looked at the death of consequences. And then we looked at the death. And I forget, I, I taught too long and I forgot my, what we talked about last week. Oh yeah, the death of gospel equality. How many of you know that's a big word that's used in the social justice circles today? Except they changed it a little bit. Instead of dealing with equality, they deal with this thing called equity. 
And the thing is, is with equity, it's not about equal opportunity. It's about equal outcomes. So the gospel says we all have equal opportunity to be forgiven. How many of you know we're all equal sinners before God? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we're all equally sinners. We all equally need to be saved. And how many of you are glad because Jesus loved the world, he gave himself, and we can have forgiveness in him. And the Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How many of you are glad we all equally can come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? We all have the equal opportunity to know God. But since the philosophies of social justice exclude a view of the Bible, exclude a view of God, exclude a view of the gospel, it's not about equality to them, it's about equity. Which in a sense means not equal opportunity, but we're just going to give everybody the same thing because everybody deserves the same thing regardless of their merit or what they've done. And then we get into this issue of this whole different system of life and economy and government. And listen, I understand we can separate government and church to a certain degree. But how many of you know eventually culture all runs together and somebody has to stand up at some point for the truth? And we need that. So we see here that social justice really in its philosophy... Uh, darkens and kills off these elements of truth of the gospel. And tonight we're going to look at a very important element of the gospel, reconciliation. And I love this aspect of the gospel. Of course, by reconciliation we mean this. Reconciliation is when you have two diametrically opposed forces that turn around and come together. Two diametrically opposed forces that turn around and come together. That is reconciliation. And how many of you are glad that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? And, and the God who turned his back on his own son because he couldn't even look at sin, now can turn his face toward us because we've been made just as if we've never sinned because we now have the righteousness of Jesus if we've trusted him as our personal Lord and Savior. And so the gospel reconciles us to God. Where we were opposed to him, where we were away from him, the gospel brings us back to him. And we're going to look at how social justice kills this element of reconciliation. First of all, I want us to see that social justice brings perpetual war. Social justice brings perpetual war. Now, when we think of social justice, and I'm not going to get too far in the weeds concerning social justice from a societal point of view, but it does have roots in how the philosophy of men wants to gain control in this world. And in the beginning of this development of social justice, you had the premise that it would help to bring in this utopia because it would expose the rift that existed between two classes of people. And in Marxism, uh, which really is communism, socialism, you saw that there was the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And the bourgeoisie were considered the wealthy class or the ruling class. The proletariat was considered the working class or the servant class. 
and they didn't recognize any middle class. They didn't recognize a spectrum of varieties of people who were gaining success and moving forward based upon the merits of their work. They just saw two fractions that they could get to oppose one another and then begin to stir up war between them. And the idea was that the only way this could be mitigated was not through things like forgiveness and reconciliation and truth and do to your neighbor as you would have them do unto you. You know, Bible stuff. By the way, how many of you know the Bible always has the answers? But, but that wasn't part of the solution. The solution was very tactical. The solution was very measured. And the solution was, let's put these two fractions of society at perpetual war with each other. And the government then would hopefully oversee a revolution of the poor rising up or the working class rising up and pushing out or overthrowing the ruling class. And then as the government would oversee such a thing, as that would transpire, it would then allow the government to move in and bring about this equity where things were dispersed evenly among people and then you would have a government class and a ruled class. And so those that put themselves up as the enlightened elite, the government, would then have control over everything. And then businesses would be subject to the government. And churches would be subject to the government. And people would keep the government in place because they would promise to give the people equal things all the time. And how many of you know that's been working its way into Christian America for a long, long, long time now? So this is the premise of the philosophy of social justice. And the reason why this is a problem is because it does bring this perpetual war. But how many of you are glad that when Jesus came and died on the cross, he said this, it is finished. You know why Jesus said it is finished? He said it is finished because when he died, there was no longer need for man to be at war with God but because Jesus died for our sins, we could know him as our Savior. We could repent of our sin and we could have peace with God. How many of you are glad that the gospel doesn't bring perpetual war? The gospel brings perpetual peace. So let's learn about that just for a little bit in Scripture. Notice with me, if you would, and the verses are on the screen, Colossians Chapter number one, and we'll begin reading with verse number 19. The whole chapter here of Colossians is dynamite, Colossians 1. I'd encourage you to read it, memorize it, study it on your own. But we're going to look at these verses tonight that speak to this issue of having peace with God. Notice here, Colossians 1, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, and the him that's being spoken of here, is Jesus Christ. So for it pleased the Father that in Jesus Christ should all fullness dwell. That means he's God. And having made what? Hey, let's say that nice and loud. Having made what? Peace. Peace. I love that. Through the blood of his cross by him. And notice this word. To reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that we're sometimes alienated and what? See, we were enemies, but how many of you are glad Jesus made a way where we didn't have to be enemies anymore? 
Jesus put an end to perpetual war with God. Why? Because he reconciles all things to himself. Notice, we were alienated and enemies in your own mind by wicked works. Yet now hath he again reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the what? See, this is the gospel. Social justice wants perpetual war. That's how people rise to power. That's how people have control. That's how things are dictated. But that's not how God works. God works by bringing peace through his son. God works by bringing peace through his son. Which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So, in social justice, God is pushed out of the picture. You have the enlightened elite. They're presiding over victims and oppressors. They use revolution to overthrow the oppressors. They then even everything out. And then they rule as God over the people, dispensing the so-called equity to everybody. Okay? But God did this for us as humanity. He said, I don't want to be at war with you. I want to put myself in a position of sacrifice for you. I love you. I will die for you. I will shed my blood for you. And if you will receive me, we can have peace. And how many of you know, it doesn't matter what system of government has existed in our world. Our world, since the very beginning, read the Bible, has been in perpetual war. Perpetual war. I believe that our nation in particular, and it's not that we haven't seen our share of war, but our nation in particular, the times that we've been able to have protection and the times that we've been able to enjoy peace have been times that we have relatively observed the understanding of our creator and his principles in our laws and in our actions. But we see here how... God wants to put an end to war and how he wants reconciliation. Now, we see that in our relationship with God, but let's also see that in our relationship with each other. Notice with me, Ephesians 4. The words are on the screen. We'll begin reading with verse number 31. Ephesians 4, verse 31. Notice the instruction here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. And how many of you know if you've got... This class of people at war with this class of people perpetually. How many of you know none of this malice and and hate and all that stuff? That never goes away. You can never put that away. That's the engine and that's the mechanism of keeping everything in upheaval. But here as believers in the peace and spirit of God, we're instructed to put away the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the clamor. And notice how we're supposed to act to one another. And be ye what? Oh, man, isn't that good? And be ye what? How many of you wish people just follow that one rule most of the time? And be ye kind, one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Isn't that powerful? And so where, under the philosophy of social justice, you have these perpetual wars between victims and oppressors, You have a God who has mitigated this reconciliation in himself by being the example, by the way, all of our leaders should be. 
Not power hungry, not authoritarian, but sacrificial and loving and desiring the best for everybody else, even if it's at the expense of themselves. And that's what God was for us. That's what Jesus did for us. And instead of pitting people constantly at war with each other, he said, I've come to die so I can bring forgiveness and my death is powerful enough and my sacrifice is powerful enough and my resurrection is powerful enough that if you'll grab onto it, it will transform your life and you no longer have to be a victim and you no longer have to be an oppressor, but now you can be kind one to another. You can be tender-hearted. You can actually forgive one another. Why? Because Christ has forgiven you. And instead of living in this mess that we're living in today where people are constantly mad at each other and people are trying to get one over the top of each other and people are trying to outdo one another and people are trying to oppress one another and people are trying to be victims of each other even, instead of this whole mess that man has come up with, we can actually be reconciled first to God and then because we've been reconciled to God through his son, we can be reconciled to each other through forgiveness. Now, I know all this is hard stuff. How many of you know it's not easy to forgive a person who's hurt you? It's not easy to forgive. And that's why uh, social justice can grab onto all of these wounds and hatred. Because how many of you know there are different wounds and hatred that exist generationally throughout cultures? How many of you remember a guy by the name of Jonah? And he was called to minister to a nation known as Nineveh. And what did Jonah do? Oh, yes, God, you love me. I'm going to love these people, and I'm going to go tell them of your love and mercy. Is that what Jonah said? No, he was about as spiritual as you and I are, wasn't he? And instead of getting on a boat to go to Nineveh, he got on the other boat that was going to Tarshish. And God had to pull him by the ear all the way to Nineveh. And then even with spite in his heart, and planting a gourd vine on the hill, ready to watch the destruction of the city, God spared that city. Nineveh, through the preaching of Jonah, the reluctant prophet, repented before God, and God showed them mercy, and Jonah was upset about it the whole stinking time. But what a powerful testimony of how far the love of God goes. And that's why the gospel... It's so important in the day and age that we live in. That's why it stands out as this bright light in the day and age that we live in is because we live in a world that's controlled by these philosophies that pit people against each other, that operate on hate and bitterness and, and wrath and violence. And that's the way you get positioning and that's the way you, you protect yourself. And, and here is a truth from the gospel that says, be ye kind one to another. Wow. And so we find here that we are not called to perpetual war. In the gospel, we are called to reconciliation. Reconciliation with God and reconciliation with each other. Notice uh, another passage here, Mark chapter 11. We'll start reading with verse number 25. And when ye stand praying, forgive if ye have aught against any that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, 
neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. And I don't have time tonight to teach all the elements of forgiveness and when we forgive and how we forgive. And I, I get that it gets complicated when we're working out people's repentance and our forgiveness. But the principle is this. Forgiveness is possible through us because forgiveness has been given to us. Because Jesus has forgiven us of sins that we do not deserve forgiveness for, we can forgive other people of their trespasses that they do not deserve forgiveness for. And, and, and we can admit to this in our own lives as believers, if we do not at least forgive by saying, God, I don't know if I can look at that person without thinking of what they did to me, but I know you've offered forgiveness to me, and I know that you've paid the price for the sin they committed against me. I can give this over to you because you've paid the price for your... How many of you understand you don't have to eat at the t same table with someone in order to move on with your life? You don't have to eat at the same table with someone in order to move on with your life. But if they're in your heart all the time and you've got bitterness all the time because of them, you've not really allowed that sin to be placed on Jesus' shoulders so that you can walk away and live your life and leave how God deals with that person up to him. They can still find forgiveness in the Lord, even if we're not going to eat at the same table with them. And that forgiveness is possible because we're freed up to forgive because we've been forgiven of things we don't deserve to be forgiven of. This is not the philosophy of how social justice works. It perpetually brings up victims and oppressors and perpetually pits people at war with themselves without any true reconciliation. So, perpetual war instead of reconciliation. This is what social justice brings. Secondly, perpetual atonement. Perpetual atonement. Social justice never lets the oppressor, so to speak, off of the hook. If you get frowned on by the social justice police, you may have heard this term in our culture today, you're going to get canceled. How many of you have heard the term cancel culture? And what happens is if you infract, according to the enlightened elite, an area of, of social justice where you can be classified as an oppressor of some kind of victim group, then you basically have to, into perpetuity, capitulate to whatever the social justice police say because you can never truly find atonement for your transgressions. And we saw elements of that recently in our culture, where people were being forced to bow to other people, or people were being forced to say or declare certain things about themselves in order sometimes to just not get beaten up. Sometimes just to go on and enjoy their dinner. And this is what social justice does, is it puts those elite enlightened in a position to call out various groups that they call oppressors and never find a way to bring reconciliation between people. And it's a very dangerous thing. How many of you know whenever people try to be God, it never works out well? Whenever people try to be God... It never, ever, ever works out well. And so what happens through social justice 
is they rewrite language, they rewrite terminology, and they rewrite history. These are terms in society that are known as deconstructionism. They deconstruct all of the things that we've been taught, that we've seen in history, the foundation of our beliefs and culture. They deconstruct it by finding the flaws in our culture and then painting all of our culture with the broad brush of our sins. And make no mistake about it, how many of you know every culture has sins you can find in it? Every culture has sins that you can find in it. In our culture today, we find this issue of so-called racism becoming a huge deal again in our culture through critical race theory, where they go back into our history where there was sin, where there was slavery, where there was the mistreatment of human beings, where there wasn't the biblical view of all men are created equally valuable in God's eyes, and we can treat certain human beings as property and chattel and do what we want with them. How many of you know that's a sin to God today forever and amen? But to take that and say that that's been a part of our history and now there's no reconciliation that can ever take place just inflames the passion of that hatred perpetually through society because there's no way to atone for it. Laws that have been passed, human rights issues that have been addressed, people who have repented of those sins can never find forgiveness because generationally into perpetuity you have to be connected to this broad brush of oppressor, and you'll always never be able to be free from that. And I'm glad the Bible tells us this, that Jesus washes all sin away. And he washes all sin away. If any man be in Christ, is he still the old creature? He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so in social justice philosophy, there's this perpetual atonement. And guess who gets to pick what the atonement is? The enlightened elite. And we find that there's no end to it. The appetite for being on the top of the social elite status is insatiable to the degree that then fractions of their own social elite begin to eat each other. How many of you have seen that in our culture today where you think, I would have never seen that person speak against that person for the thing that they're doing? Why? Because there's no moral foundation for any of this and, and there's no end to it. It's perpetual atonement. How many of you are glad that Jesus' sacrifice and his alone is sufficient to wash our sins away? So let's remind ourselves of what the gospel says about this just for a short time this evening. Notice with me, if you would, the verses are on the screen. Hebrews 10. This is a little bit lengthy passage, but it's good, okay? So we're going to begin reading with verse number one. Follow along with me. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, 
There is a remembrance again made of sins every year. See, this is the insufficient atonement that's being described here in the Old Testament. How many of you understand the people in the Old Testament kept having to come back to offer more sacrifices? Because Jesus had not yet died. None of those sacrifices were sufficient to wash sins away. In fact, they were, like every other part of the law, a schoolmaster reminding them every year that you're sinners and that there is one who's going to come to take your sin away, but you're locked into this till he comes. You need to, by faith, remember you're a sinner and trust there's going to be a Savior. And so all of those Old Testament sacrifices, they came and they gave sacrifice. They came and they gave sacrifice. Why? Because they weren't sufficient. Just like the perpetual atonement of social justice won't be ever sufficient. But notice what the writer here of Hebrews continues to teach us. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. And it's not possible that the kneeling and bowing and chanting and recanting of social norms will ever take away sin. None, social justice doesn't take away sin. The law of the Old Testament doesn't take away sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, nothing else can wash away our sin. It's only his blood. The blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the, the uh, bowing down to social norms. None of this can wash away sin. None of this can bring reconciliation. Notice verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, of course, the sacrifice, the the Lord, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. Of course, this is all words from the Old Testament of prophecy, speaking to the sacrifice of the Messiah. To do thy will, O God, above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not. Neither hath pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. And I love this verse. Notice. Then said he, Lo, I come to do the will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And notice this. Once for all. How many of you are glad his sacrifice is sufficient? And we don't have to be in either this perpetual loop of religion or this perpetual loop of cultural subjugation in order to be freed from our sins. Jesus, through the gospel, frees us from our sins. And we can live a new life in him. So we find here that we do not need perpetual atonement. Lastly, this evening, very quickly, we see that social justice also brings a perpetual burden. In the philosophy of social justice, you're scrambling all the time trying to figure out what kind of victim am I or what kind of oppressor am I and what do I need to do to bow to culture or what do I need to do to intersect all the different areas that I'm a victim so that I can have more power or more grace or more effectiveness in culture. It's a burden. You're scrambling. How many of you found that just living in culture today has become more of a burden than sometimes it's worth, right? I mean, 
to have a conversation with someone and they're constantly trying to identify you and we've got identity politics, we've got identity religion, we've got identity this and, and we're just a mess with all these burdens that mankind is putting on our shoulders to try to categorize us into some kind of definition of ourselves when I'm glad I can be found in Christ and I can be complete in Him. But here we find that in social justice, there's this perpetual burden. And I'm glad that the gospel does not give us a burden. In fact, it lifts our burden. Let's be reminded of that just for a moment, if we could be. Notice Romans 8. We'll begin reading with verse number 1. I love these verses. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. How many of you are glad if you're saved tonight, there's no more condemnation in your life? You are free. No more burden. No more condemnation. Notice, as we continue to read on here, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, or what social justice or any other man-made philosophy could not do, in that it is weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Reconciliation, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You see, the gospel takes the weight and burden of whatever category the culture tries to put on you. Are you the oppressor? Or are you the victim? Are you the sinner? Or are you the saint? Well, I got an answer for you. We're all sinners. We all need the Savior. We all need the gospel. And when we come to the gospel, the burden is lifted. We sing that song here at church too. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Calvary, Calvary. You see, this is the singing pastor tonight. Do we need to tip him when we leave? I don't know. Maybe. Still. But... But I'm glad we don't have to be under that same yoke, that burden that nobody can bear up under. It's, it's alleviated by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice with me, and we'll be done, Matthew chapter 11. We'll begin reading with verse number 28. The words of Jesus, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, with philosophies like social justice, there's perpetual war. But with the gospel, there's peace in Christ. With philosophies like social justice, there's perpetual atonement. But with the gospel, Jesus paid the price for all of our sin and his death and his resurrection are sufficient to take all of our sins away and give us new life in him. With philosophies like social justice, there's a perpetual burden on our shoulders. But with the gospel, the burden is lifted and we are free.